Artificial intelligence. We seem to be hearing about it everywhere. We're talking about one of the hottest topics, artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence is finding its place in all sorts of scientific fields, and perhaps none holds more life-saving promise than healthcare. We're already seeing the power of AI in medicine, and it may prove to be a significant game changer in cancer care, with the promise of detecting cancers early as well as in cancer discovery, leading to more successful treatments. But does artificial intelligence live up to the hype? And what are the concerns? Let's talk about it. Hello, I'm Dr. Diane Reedy Lagunes from Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, and welcome to Cancer Straight Talk. We're bringing together national experts and patients fighting these diseases to have evidence-based conversations. Our mission is to educate and empower you and your family members to make the right decisions and live happier and healthier lives. For more information on the topics discussed here or to send us your questions, please visit us at mskcc.org podcast. Today we are joined by Dr. Saurabh Shah and Dr. Larry Schwartz. Saurabh is a PhD scientist who leads MSK's computational oncology program. His work centers on computational data to understand cancer evolution and how cancer spreads and develops resistance to treatment. His work is using AI to foster cancer discoveries and hopefully identify new cancer treatments. Larry is the chair of Department of Radiology here at MSK. He's known for his innovative use of new technology in cancer care. His current work centers around the use of artificial intelligence in the world of radiology, and his research is helping to create and use more AI-supported tools for cancer imaging, including cancer detection and early cancer response. Thank you both for joining me today. Thanks for having us. Thanks. So we are super excited for this pod, and it feels like everywhere AI is the sort of buzzword that's going on. Sarb, in most basic terms, could you just help us identify exactly what is artificial intelligence? Yes, it's really the science of making intelligent computer programs, and that can mean different things to different people. One example is to learn patterns in data, and that can be used to be able to determine whether an image contains a certain object, for example, a cat versus a dog. That is very powerful because it allows us to make decisions based on information and data. And you can imagine in cancer, we have a lot of information that's encoded in digital form. And we might want to, for example, take a scan of the cells of a tumor under a microscope. And AI can be deployed to determine whether there are cancer cells in that tissue or not. AI has been a powerful tool that allows us to really synthesize information and that helps with decision-making. It helps with making predictions. It helps with statistical analysis of data as well, and is now obviously making a huge impact on society. Larry, do you have an understanding of the AI's potential as it relates to medicine and particularly cancer care? I think there's a great potential for it. Certainly in the imaging field, we've actually had AI applications for close to a decade. For instance, in many settings, a healthy woman's mammogram is overread or second read with an AI technology to make sure that nothing was missed. But we've certainly just at the beginning of the journey to understand what AI could do. I think in most health systems, 40% of the data generated is medical imaging, is radiology. But then you have the other 60% and putting that all together, it's very difficult for an individual to do that a smart machine could really help us. Before we dive a little deeper into understanding how the smart machine is going to help us cure cancer, hopefully one day, there's a lot of concern about it too, right? Larry, can you talk 
to that piece in terms of like what there might be concerns about in regards to patient privacy or any other kind of concerns of using this type of technology to help our patients? There certainly are concerns now, but I also think there are ways to protect those concerns and really truly protect patient privacy. So in the medical imaging world, for instance, every patient scan is identified by their name, a medical record number, a date, frequently their birth date, their own referring physician. We're able to strip off and eliminate all of that information before we actually analyze the image. And in fact, that's an absolute requirement. We actually use AI to check to make sure that there is no privacy information on the actual image itself. We actually have to take it one step further. If you think about a patient that may have a CT scan or an MRI of the brain or the neck, you know, there's information about the face there, right? And theoretically, now you could reconstruct the face and may be able to identify the person. We have ways to deconstruct that ahead of time. And it's actually a requirement of ours that we do actually deconstruct that so that the facial recognition could never, ever possibly be used on that data set. So there really are a lot of ways to protect. And then, of course, regulators to decide how and when AI can appropriately be used. And I do think that our regulators are getting a lot smarter about this. Absolutely. So can you share with us a little bit about how those data sets are created in the world of scientific discovery and genetics, and in particular, the potential to collaborate with others to inform that your data set is in fact robust and clean and valid? One of the major challenges in our field is that many institutions like ours, we have data sets within our own four walls. And we might train a model based on that data set, but it doesn't generalize well to the data set that was generated in a different institution. There are some barriers there because of the privacy issues of sharing data across institutions. And so this is a challenge that we have to systemically address, whereby institutions should try to collaborate on this in order to really achieve the promise to improve and enhance cancer care for the population writ large. I would really hope that many institutions can get together and start to share data in an anonymous way that protects patient privacy. So let's get to the applications. Once we have those data sets that we feel are clean enough for which we want to learn from, Sarb, can you explain to us your fascinating work, particularly in ovarian cancer, and how you're using those data sets to better understand the science behind it? One of the powerful attributes of taking these computational models is actually be able to synthesize different types of data. Cancer is fundamentally a disease of the genome where ultimately mutations that accrue in the DNA of certain cells will result in a transformation of that cell's normal behavior to a cancerous behavior. But that's only part of the story. If we only measure the genome, we will only be able to learn so much. And what's fascinating about how our field is progressing is that the number of different forms of digital information, including radiology that Dr. Schwartz is working on, or digital pathology, which is essentially a microscopic view of the tumor, that can actually be digitized and become a piece of data that can be incorporated into a model. So what we've been really focusing on is trying to understand how do these different forms of data fit together 
to make a comprehensive view of the tumor or even the patient at large. And this is really where some of the AI models and progress in computer science are shining a light on a holistic view of a tumor or even a holistic view of a patient. If we can start to integrate, what can we learn from radiology, pathology, genomics, and even the clinical record where this text information can be brought together, then we have a real chance of learning from every patient that we see. And this is all data that's procured typically in the provision of care. It's an incredible opportunity to bring these different sources of data together using AI models to make better predictions, for example, of whether a patient might respond to a given therapy. And so it's taking personalized medicine to a sort of a next level. Our research is really at the very beginning stages of this, but we've shown some really, really exciting proof of principle that if we execute this model, pulling different sources of information together, we get a much better predictive capacity of whether a patient will respond to a therapy or not based on that AI and based on their genetics and their radiology all together. Exactly. Larry, talk to us a little bit more about the applications of AI and radiology today and where you're expecting the ball to go. I'll give a few examples of it. So one example would be in the acquisition of a scan. Many patients have follow-up scans, CT scans, MRI, PET scans. They take a long time. In fact, they used to take up to an hour to do each of them. And the reason that they are there that long is it takes that long to collect all of the information, all of the data in the scan. Utilizing AI technology now, we're actually able to collect that data more rapidly so that nowadays, if you come to Memorial, your scans take half the time that they used to a few years ago. And we'll continue to cut that time down. And another application is detecting lesions. So we do that now visually to identify areas of abnormality. Now, the reason why patients really shouldn't be afraid of this is the radiologist oversees everything that the computer identifies. So it just makes us a smarter radiologist. But really the big advance is not only to do it faster and do it equal to what the radiologist could do, but actually to do it better. There's patterns that we've learned that may indicate malignancy or may indicate that a lesion is more likely to be benign and especially as it changes over time. So as we apply the AI algorithm to that and then have the radiologist interpret it, we could say with more certainty, that's a tumor. Or what's even better is to say, that's not a tumor and you don't need any follow-up. You can go about your life and you're gonna be absolutely fine. And that's a beautiful thing because I could say firsthand, our patients get so nervous about these things and we say, come back in 12 weeks and they're worrying about it for 12 weeks. And so I think that's really important clinically. Currently, as you both know, there are real-world applications of AI in the use of dermatology. And I had a chance to speak with Dr. Alan Halpern, dermatologist here at MSK, who specializes in early detection of skin cancer, particularly melanoma. I asked him about how AI was being used in the field of dermatology and how it's made a difference. And let's take a listen. AI is now touching absolutely everything, right? And since dermatology is a visual specialty, the real exciting part for us is using image-based AI to help us do a better job diagnosing skin conditions and especially skin cancer. And could you explain to us a little bit about some of those consortiums and those big databases, such as the International Skin Imaging Collaboration that you've played such a pivotal part in? As you're all probably beginning to hear and understand, the way AI works is it needs huge data sets to train on, and then it just gets smarter and smarter based on those data sets. 
And in dermatology, that's a bit of a challenge because the AI really needs pictures that have appropriate, accurate labels. What is it? What is this rash? What is this spot? And the reality is that those images, when they exist in medical centers, are all siloed. And there's a lot of privacy issues around them because these are people without their clothes on. So we created the International Skin Imaging Collaboration back at the beginning in 2014 to begin to create an archive of images that AI can train on that could be in the public domain without any privacy concerns and for which we have really accurate diagnoses. And then we've been busy engaging the computer scientists to use this resource and helping to move the field along, including creating standards for AI for dermatology. So clearly a huge potential aid in helping us identify these lesions. So one of the struggles with AI is the data and ensuring that it is inclusive and that there's equity in the interpretation of that data so that all patient populations are included. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, I think this is a critical element, especially as we move to deploying AI in a healthcare setting. We want to make sure that the tools are functioning well for all patients. And the risk is that models that are trained but can only make predictions on the data that it's seen. And so if the input data is not representative of the population as a whole or not representing rare populations, then those models will not be as powerful for those patients. So there's a real concern about equitable application and equitable care. So I think what we as a field have to do is make sure that the models that are actually deployed in clinical practice, if and when that happens, pay very close attention to how those models were trained, what populations were represented, and which populations were not represented so that we have a better idea of where it's going to derive benefit and where it may not derive benefit. As we move towards clinical implementation of these models, this is really a critical element that we must consider. I want to go back to the future of AI and cancer discovery. And you talked about the critical importance of trying to merge data in different academic centers. I think we're getting there, albeit very slowly, in terms of even just the clinical data. Now we have similar electronic medical records in many centers that may be at least a piece to get us there. But where do you see the AI piece in the next five years in terms of understanding the science behind that cancer? Because we talk a lot on this pod about cancer being thousands of diseases, even when we're just calling it breast cancer. It's really not. There's hundreds of cancers that we call breast cancer. So I'm just curious if you think that AI could help us better understand the different types of cancers that we have. Absolutely. One thing we haven't mentioned in this discussion is really the emergence of large language models. Your audience will be very familiar with the idea of chat GPT. These types of models are called generative AI. The way that they work is by ingesting huge amounts of data. And when I mean huge amounts of data, I mean learning patterns of all of Wikipedia or all of the internet. The way these models work is with a prompt. And so you can ask a question and based on that question, the models will actually generate an answer that is derived from this language that it learns. So to someone who's consuming that response, it really reads as though a human could have written that sentence. The reason I bring this up is because I think the text information that you're talking about in the electronic medical records are a great example of this. And I think we're just at the very beginning of being able to now deploy these large language models on clinical record information. 
And I do believe that combined with molecular data, we can very powerfully extract what treatment was that patient given from the medical record. And based on the genetics, given the mutations that are present in that tumor, the treatment that the patient was given, and then the response of the tumor to that treatment, we can really start to learn the associations of what mutations might be predictive of response to a given therapy. And that's just one small example. You can take that further to what patterns are present in radiology, what patterns are present in the digital pathology. And by pulling all these different forms of information together in what we call multimodal integration, the text information that's present in clinical records will become critical to making these predictions. In the next 10 years, I'm sure we'll see major progress in that area. Yeah, it could really flip our whole paradigm upside down. Right now, if I care for patients with colon cancer, every patient, irrespective of their genetic analysis, with more or less exceptions, in first and second and third line setting are all going on. And then we see who responds. And then we look backwards to say, okay, what were their genetics to see who may or may not have responded? But what you're saying is we have the potential to look at all the data and then start to really define potentially their treatment algorithms based on what the data is telling us to give to that patient first, second, and third, which is really very powerful and very exciting. Larry, along those lines, you've done work already. Can you share with us a little bit about the potential to use AI to know earlier rather than later if a treatment is working? I mean, right now, if I have a patient receiving therapy, generally we wait at least eight to 10 weeks before we know if it worked or not and the scan just shows if it shrank or if it stayed the same or if it grew. Any potential for AI in that space? Very simply, the reason we've had to wait six, eight, 10 weeks is we were simply measuring a tumor size. But now with AI, we're able to detect and correlate with outcomes, features of that tumor that occur much earlier, a week, two weeks, three weeks, quite easily. And not only that, but then map out these over time. You talk about big data. You take a large number of patients and then you add multiple scans per patient and multiple time points per patient. It really does take an AI engine to sort through this and to understand the disease trajectory. How much treatment should the patient get? When should they get the treatment? And when are they actually responding? And unfortunately, when are they progressing? And can we tell that earlier so we could actually switch those treatments and have a patient on this cancer journey that's much longer because we're able to identify all of these different aspects. But to your point, it really takes an understanding of a large cohort of patients that have been on therapy and to analyze how well they've done or how they haven't done well. Amazing. Any final thoughts, Larry? It's an exciting time, but also it's really a hopeful time for patients. And I think that we will be able to make these changes and advance this technology. One final thought. We've talked about data sharing for a long time, and it certainly has been important. I would say it's imperative now because we have a technology that we could advance so far with it. Sir? When we look back 10 years from now, we will look at the years 2022-2023 as an inflection point in the use of AI and society writ large. But it will also be looked at at a time where we can start to adopt these models using AI for good, if you will. And that means deploying these as tools in our arsenal to treat cancer patients more effectively. We're in the beginning of this revolution, and it's very exciting to think about the impact of that in the future. Totally agree. Thank you both so much for joining me today. Thank you. 
Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Cancer Straight Talk from Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. For more information or to send us your questions, please visit us at mskcc.org slash podcast. Help others find this helpful resource by rating and reviewing it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Any products mentioned on the show are not official endorsements by Memorial Sloan Kettering. These episodes are for you, but are not intended to be a medical substitute. Please remember to consult your doctor with any questions you have regarding medical conditions. I'm Dr. Diane Reedy-Lagunes. Onward and upward.